Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is my friend, Bob Reese. Welcome to the podcast, Bob. Thank you, Richard. It's wonderful to be here in this community that I love and uh, uh, just care so much about. Um, I've been aware of Bob for quite a while. This is the first time we visited, so I'm going to hear stories from Bob like you are are going to hear that will be helpful for us. Um, Bob is one of my few guests that I can go on the internet and find his Wikipedia page. And that helps me as a podcast host to know more about Bob. And I'll link to his Wikipedia page, but there's um, a number of sections. There's his biography. He has a PhD. He's currently teaching. Um, He's a visiting professor. And we'll talk about his, just kind of what he's doing there. And we'll, the second part of his Wikipedia page is, is the, all the interfaith and ecclesiastical stuff he's done for the LDS Church and humanitarian work. Um, the fourth section, I skipped one, is all the writing that Bob has done. And we will link to some of the things that he's written and talk about those. Five is things that Bob's probably embarrassed about, is honors, awards, and fellowships. So I, I probably won't get Bob be able to talk much about that. Um, but there are a lot of things there that rightly so um, provide recognition for Bob and his work. Six is his work, references is seven, and sources is eight. I became aware of Bob when I kind of became an LGBTQ ally because I recognized Bob as somebody who's been in this space for perhaps five decades. Bob is in his 80s and is one of the members of our church that just has a long view of LGBTQ and faith and has been writing and talking about this for a long time. And I'm relatively new, by perspective, maybe in this space for five um, years. And so I hope that, and others of you may be in this space new. And I'm just grateful to have Bob on the podcast to share the work he's done and, and kind of his long view and give all of us perspective on a couple of these really important issues. Is that okay for an introduction, Bob? <laughs> That's wonderful. I- uh, I'm happy to uh, just jump in and uh, start uh, start sharing uh, thoughts and feelings and uh, be tell, able to uh, answer any questions people have. Will you tell our listeners your academic assignment right now, where you're teaching, and and maybe just you've taught so many different places. Just take us to one or two of your very places. You've been in England. You've been all over the world, and you have a PhD. Just share with us where you're teaching and some of your favorite places. Well, any place I've taught has been favorite because I love teaching. Uh, I, uh, my family uh, was hoping, like most people who uh, came out of the Great Depression, that I would study law or medicine, and they were a little bit disappointed that I wanted to be a teacher. But I, uh, I felt that was my calling. And um, so I taught for a number of years at uh, UCLA, I've taught uh, at UC Santa Cruz and UC Berkeley. I've taught in, uh, I've spent about four years teaching in uh, Eastern Europe uh, just after the fall of the Soviet Union when I was uh, in the uh, uh, mission presidency of the Baltic States Mission. And that was a wonderful experience to teach in a country where um, uh, it had been under a Soviet uh, uh, occupation for many years and to find students who were uh, afraid to give a voice a, a, an opinion or to express an idea. And um, so I've uh, 
I, I've, my field is the humanities, but I, I really, uh, uh, I'm, I have such a kind of universal interest in everything that I, I don't stay within uh, typical academic boundaries. So I've taught 35 different courses in higher education, and um, all of them have been uh, joyful. I now, the past 10 years, I've been teaching uh, Mormon studies at Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley. And um, we have, we're a group of us are trying to establish a center for the study of the Latter-day Saint tradition uh, here in, uh, in the Bay Area. And that's been, and is a wonderful uh, a project I'm working on now. Uh, it may be one of the, the last big goals I uh, have to accomplish, uh, but uh, it's one that I'm very uh, passionate about. And one of the things at GTU that I value is that there is a center for LGBT studies there. And uh, a couple of years ago, they had a wonderful exhibit of portraits of Latter-day Saint uh, gays and lesbians done by a Latter-day Saint uh, artist. Uh, so there is uh, an opportunity to, uh, uh, to be able to uh, get into uh, conversation with other religions. Almost every religion has had a challenge with how to deal with LGBT people. So it's wonderful to be in an interfaith and interreligious community doing that. So um, I love to teach and uh, I've spent probably 35 years of my life in the church teaching gospel doctrine class, which I think is the best calling in the church. If I had talked to you when you were a high school student, would you have said that you wanted to teach for the rest of your life? Or did this come later in life? Or later in college years? I came out of a very broken family uh, background. Neither of my parents graduated from high school. Uh, My parents divorced when I was an infant. Uh, My mother married five times, my father four. Um, There was lots of uh, abuse and um, uh, disorder and dysfunction in that family. I didn't really quite know who I was or what I wanted to do. But when I went to BYU at age 17, uh, I had the idea that I wanted to be a high school counselor, but um, I started taking courses and uh, I was just open. One of the wonderful things about a liberal education is that its function is to expose you to all of the ideas. So I was, for a time, I was going to major in psychology and then in geology. And and then I took a course in literature, introduction to literature from Robert K. Thomas, who's been, who was one of the great teachers of my life. And I, I just knew I was home there. I knew this was what I wanted to do. The, the, his teaching has such a profound effect on me. So as I began studying Chaucer, Chaucer and Shakespeare and Milton and uh, all of the modern poets, I just became so enamored of, uh, of literature. And so uh, I was able to get a National Woodrow Wilson Fellowship to go to graduate school. Um, it's interesting that before I went on my mission, I didn't really have much uh, focus, but my mission, I needed, I needed a lot of growing up to do, and my mission really provided a lot of that. So I went from being a kind of a C-plus student to an A student uh, uh, after my mission, and that was good enough to get me into a, a very good graduate program at the University of Wisconsin. And um, so that was... Uh, uh, that was, you know, one of the, the places where I uh, I learned. I I feel that uh, so much of our experiences in life are essentially uh, 
to teach us how to love. And um, I think that's what our heavenly parents want us to learn. Whatever else we learn here, if we haven't learned how to love, then it hasn't been a success. I wrote an essay once where I said that the, the kingdoms of glory are really kingdoms of love, that um, the people who go to the celestial kingdom will be those who uh, learn to love uh, themselves. Uh, then if you learn to love yourself and others, you move up. And if you learn to love yourself and others and love everyone, uh, even your enemies, then that qualifies you for uh, you know, trying to do what God wants you to do. So each of these experiences, and one of the reasons why I think my experience with LGBT people has been so passionate for me is that um, it was, you know, I had so much growing up to do coming out of that childhood that was so broken and that uh, I was so lost and lonely. Um, my family has been converted to the church independent in four successive generations independent of the previous generation, which is, I don't know of anyone else that can say that, but my great-great-grandparents joined the church, converts in 1850s in Fishguard, Wales, immigrated to the Great Basin with their three sons. Um, my great-grandfather went back to Wales. He couldn't stand the hard life. My great my grandmother uh, joined the church, uh, uh, independent of uh, uh, that, uh, independent, that experience. My grandfather, whose name was Zoram, was never a member of the church. My father was converted through a, who, who never joined the church until he was an adult, was converted by miraculous priesthood blessing. And when he came home from the Second World War, when I was 10, he taught me uh, about the gospel, about Jesus, and uh, about the Book of Mormon. And uh, that um, I, I had just, I had that sense that what we call a shock of recognition that this was good and it was true and it was beautiful. And um, because of that, I began to see this is something I wanted to be a part of and something I wanted to share with other people. And uh, I think the best way that I felt I could do that was by teaching. I love that story. Where did you go on your mission? Bob? I went to the Northern States. Uh, it was by then, in those days, it included three and a half states. <laughs> it was a big mission. Uh, I think there are probably four missions there now. But it was, uh, it was a wonderful place uh, for a young kid to grow up and try to find out what he was going to do in life. Uh, mission for me was also transformative and really focused me on my future. And I love that you came home from your mission so focused and have really followed that um, desire and have had you know, multiple decades since then, blessing people's lives. I love what you said about this, the kingdoms are about love and life is about love. And and to me, that just resonates with my increasingly understanding of the gospel. I'd love you to talk about helping, you know, a couple topics here that you've been involved with for quite a while. One is just dealing, helping people that are going through a faith crisis, um, especially those that are still trying to make it work, um, and LGBTQ. Where, where, do you, where would you like to start on either of those? Well, I think that um, I would guess that anybody who has had some kind of a faith crisis isn't very alive in the world in which we live. <laughs> uh, there's just uh, there's so much to challenge our faith, even whether we 
are religious or not, uh, whether we have a general faith. And I, since I teach at a theological university, I know that uh, most, uh, almost every, well, every religion uh, except atheists, I suppose, have a faith crisis. Uh, they, they, they're dealing with this and with the increasing uh, power of the secular world, uh, religion is uh, fighting an ongoing war for survival. Uh, so I, I find um, you know, that uh, God has given us both a heart and a brain and a spirit, uh, and uh, that we can't really make sense of the world without a, co- a conversation between both of them. I say that I distrust two kinds of Mormons, those who only think and those who never think. Um, I've lately added two other kinds, those who only feel and those who never feel. That it is this conversation, this dialogue uh, between our hearts and our minds that uh, we have the best opportunity of uh, finding truth. So people who look at the church only through their mind or only through their heart are going to only see part of the church. And the church is uh, complex, it's dynamic, it's, uh, 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 it's confusing at times, it's, it's many things. I wrote an essay called uh, Forgiving the Church and Loving the Saints, in which I talked about uh, uh, Kohlberg's stages of development and uh, that we are all hopefully in stages of spiritual evolution. And as institutions and as people, I've lived long enough to see the church make a dramatic evolution on LGBT issues. Uh, We are in a very different place than we were 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. I think, I hope we're in a different place than we will be in 10 years. I don't think we are through evolving by any means, but it's been wonderful for me to see um, and to have a ministry within this arena, as well as other arenas. My wife uh, used to say to me, why are you so involved with LGBT people? And I, my response is, I don't know. Um, I don't have a gay person in my family. I don't have any gay children. Um, but I somehow felt very early called to, uh, to this particular ministry. And I can say it has been... Uh, a joyful one. And I would say, in terms of what I was saying before, I was kind of leading to saying that I've been blessed to have people who taught me how to love. And one of the reasons why I um, have feelings about gay marriage and why I rejoiced when the uh, Supreme Court validated gay marriage was because even though I feel that what the church how the church handled that is up to the church. Uh, but it was through marriage to my first wife, who passed away 10 years ago, and to my current wife, uh, Gloria, that I've learned to love. I had a lot of learning to do. But it was also as um, a friend and as a bishop to a number of young gay Latter-day Saint uh, LGBT people when I was bishop of the Los Angeles First Ward in the 80s, um, those people taught me how to love. They taught me to expand my heart, to expand my mind, to expand my spirit, to embrace them. And um, when I I said to you before we got on uh, this, this interview, Richard, that I 
felt during those five years that I lived in a state of grace. And part of that state of grace, a good part of it, was just ministering to LGBT people and seeing their devotion to the church as being, being with them during their heartbreak. Um, one of the great experiences I had that kind of illustrates what was possible. I got a call from a family um, who said, uh, I got a call from a man who said, you know, my brother has just moved into your ward. Uh, he is gay. He's living with his gay partner. Uh, I wonder if you would go visit him. And I said, I would be glad to, because I, one of the things I tried to do in, in that ward is to say, this ward is a place that everybody's welcome. And uh, so I went to see Brad Murdoch and uh, found him to be a wonderful human being and uh, met his partner, Patrick. And uh, he, I knew he was dying of AIDS. Uh, and I said, uh, well, why don't you come to church? Sunday. He said, well, that's not possible, is it? And I said, of course it is. You're welcome at the church. So he came to church. And my ward opened their arms wide for him. And my wife, who was the uh, choir director, music director, invited him because he, he was in the first uh, Saturday's Warriors cast. She knew he was a good singer, invited him to be in the choir. Uh, he, he started coming, and I knew we had a the clock was ticking. So after a month or two, I said, uh, come into the office. I said, uh, have you ever thought of going to the temple? He said, yeah. I said, of course, I'd like to. My family's all gone, but uh, I know that's not possible. And I said, well, maybe it is. I said, I'm going to ask you the questions I would ask you if we were having an interview. I just want you to think about them. So I did. I did went through those questions. And a couple of months later, I said, have you been thinking about those questions? And he said, yes. I said, are you ready for me to ask them for real? He said, yes. So I said, how does Patrick feel about these questions? He said, Patrick loves me and he wants what I want, which is to go to the temple before I die. So. We asked the questions, the state president, Howard Anderson, was a wonderful interviewed him. And on a certain uh, weekend, uh, we, his family came down from Santa Barbara. Uh, his, his mother, his father was not a member, but his mother and his siblings. And we had, uh, went through, I was his escort through the temple. And uh, it was a beautiful experience. Unbeknownst to me, Richard, uh, the temple president got a call that morning from somebody who said, you know, you've got somebody going through the temple today who's not worthy to go through. And the temple president said, what do you mean? He said, well, you've got a, a gay man who's going through the temple. So the temple president didn't know what to do. He called the state president. And the state Sorry, it's hard for me to talk about this, but the state president said, temple president, I want you to get the name of whoever that brother is who calls you. And I want you to call his state president and tell him to call a council for someone who is meddling in things that he has no business meddling in. This brother who is going through the temple today has been interviewed by his bishop and by me. 
he's worthy to go through the temple. And, uh, you know, Brad never knew that. Wow. He never knew that somebody had called. But uh, uh, afterwards, we had uh, this wonderful thing. And, and when other members of my ward who were heterosexual were saying, uh, how can you condone uh, somebody going to the temple when they're, uh, they're living with their, their, their partner? And I said, because Patrick loves Brad, and Patrick is going to be the one who takes care of him. Well, he dies, and they have agreed to to be chased, and that is a situation that I believe uh, I honor. And so Brad did pass away. Wow. But uh, sorry, in a sense, to be so tenderhearted about this, but it really illustrates to me how much our LGBT people need to be loved, how much they need to be honored for their desire to be faithful, how much they need to be uh, nurtured in ways that I think Christ calls us to, to nurture them. I, that's a great story, Bob. Um, I love your, I love following the spirit that you and President Anderson did to get this young man to the temple and you, how you both saw his heart and the role of his partner in his life um, and the support they received from you. Just keep telling stories, Bob. Tell us, talk about faith, talk about LGBTQ. Just um, keep sharing just thoughts in your heart or in your mind. My, uh, part of it that I, I began, part of my education was to begin trying to make sense of how LGBT people were treated in the church in light of the New Testament and the Book of Mormon. And um, the first thing I had to say was, why would anyone, when, when, when all of everybody was saying, well, this is something people chose and they can change it. I, would, I kept saying, why would anyone choose to be gay in uh, a community that is so hostile to them. Uh, only somebody who is a masochist would do that. Uh, and, and, but, and still these people were, so many of them uh, were willing to, uh, uh, to stay in the church even though I felt they were being rejected and reviled and, uh, and treated as outcasts. They kept coming. And the, the heartbreak for me was that uh, uh, some of them finally couldn't, you know, take it because I could understand that there was so much rejection, and the rejection began in their families. I did not understand, and will never understand, how a parent uh, could reject a child who was gay. I remember, in fact, having a call from a family uh, when I was bishop, and the mother said, uh, "We don't know what to do. Uh, uh, our 17-year-old boy has just come out to us and told us." Uh, He's gay, and I said, "Well, you should love him and uh, accept him in the family." She said, "Well, we're afraid he's going to uh, cause the other kids to become gay." And I said, "You know, <laughs> this is not an infectious disease. This is not a disease. This is not malady. This is a human condition that we don't understand, except we know that some people have it." And uh, um, or I had uh, 
another man call me and say, uh, I don't know what to do. I have a gay daughter. I love her. We have a good relationship. But she's going to get married to her partner. And uh, I don't know. I just, I don't think I can go to the wedding. I don't know what to do. And I said, of course you should go to the wedding. You should go. And he said, but what about my 13-year-old daughter? I said, take her to the wedding and have her celebrate her sister's marriage. This is, this is the most important day in your older daughter's life. The whole family should celebrate. But, but families, you know, I, I remember one family, uh, the, the, a woman, a friend of mine, her father was a bishop in Salt Lake, a large family. Every year they had a reunion. And uh, when they found out that this particular sister who lived in Washington, D.C. area, when they found out they had a gay son, the father, who was a bishop, said, well, you, you can't come to family reunions anymore. And I just thought, how can that happen in Christ's church? And this woman was telling me a very sweet uh, story that her, her son went through all of the turmoil of trying to be a gay teenager and stay in the church and trying to, I think he may even have gone on a mission, uh, as many people did, hoping that that, might, that would change them. They could, if they could prove to God they were faithful enough, God would change them from being gay. And uh, she said, um, she said I, I didn't really understand my son's gayness until we were at his house. He and his partner were... Uh, had rented an apartment and they wanted us to come and help them furnish it. And she said, he was at the top of the stairs and he called down to his partner and he said, hey, honey, would you bring this up? And she said, he spoke to him in the same way, in the same tenderness with which my husband and I spoke to one another. And I realized that that relationship was just like ours, except that, you know, it was same sex instead of opposite sex. So she saw the humanness of her son in a new way. So that I fortunately, I hope fortunately, we have very, we have, I'd like to say no parents who reject their students. But a couple of years ago, I was in Ogden working with some people at the, the there's a shelter there for LGBT people. And there were some transgender uh, kids there whose parents had kicked them out of their house. Some of them were living on the streets. Some of them were doing things that they shouldn't do to try and make enough money to survive. I just think, you know, if you, are, if you can't go home, then there's something wrong with your religion. I have, um, in, a, in this collection of essays that's going to be published next month called uh, um, Why I Stay, The Challenges of Discipleship for Contemporary Mormons. My essay is called Going Home. and. Um, the whole reason we are here in terms of what our Heavenly Mother and Heavenly Father planned for us is they want us to go home. And they are welcoming us back to that home. No matter how sinful we've been, we will have a home. And so there needs to be a church home. You know, if I say to people, uh, imagine this Sunday, if you're sitting in church and someone comes in and sits down beside you who has wearing a skirt and has a beard, what would you do? Ask yourself, would I invite this person to, to dinner? Uh, how, do, 
how do we respond to the least of these? And I think that one of the things I feel, Richard, is that Christ calls us to use our imaginations. Uh, Christ had this great imagination. He could imagine all of us redeemed, no matter how sick or how sinful we were. He imagined us in the garden of Gethsemane, made whole. And so we need to imagine what it would be like if we are not LGBT, what it would be like. And I had this experience. I was called a number of years ago to go out to uh, a group of people in uh, a ward out in uh, east of uh, uh, San Francisco, a group of people who had been having a, a gathering for themselves. They had their own little study group for a number of years, about a dozen of them. and. Uh, invited me to come out and talk about my experience working with LGBT people. And so I began by saying, the first question I'd like to ask is, when did you choose to be heterosexual? And they said, what do you mean? And I said, well, if sexual orientation is a choice, you must have chosen. No, we've always been this way. I said, okay, I'm going to ask you another question. You're sitting next to somebody that you have loved for 20, 30, 40 years. You've had children, grandchildren. Uh, you have grown up and grown spiritually and emotionally by this person who's sitting next to you. Just look at that person right now, this person that you love and have loved. I want you to go back to the time when you fell in love and decided that you wanted to marry one another. What would you have done if you had been told that your only choice was to marry someone of your own gender? What choice would you have made? I want you, I'm not gonna ask you to tell me, but I want you to answer in your heart, what would you have done? In your imagination, could you imagine yourself giving up this person that you love and marrying somebody that you didn't or couldn't perhaps love in the same way that you could not have intimacy with? So I think if we use our imaginations, and that, that certainly helped me as a bishop, I tried to imagine what these people were going through, some of whom had been rejected by their families and who had come out of other wards where they had been, I think, um, abused by their ecclesiastical leaders. So using the imagination, I think, is a helpful thing to do. I love that. I love you tying it into Matthew 25. Talk, um, there's a couple books on your list that are I'll just read the titles and introduction to this question. A, gu- a Guide for Latter-day Saint Families Dealing with Homosexual Attraction. That's Desert Book in 2002. And another one in 20, um, Supportive Families, Healthy Children, Helping Latter-day Saint Families with Gay, Lesbian, Bisexual, and Transgender Children. And that's San Francisco State University 2012. There's a lot of LDS parents that are connecting to podcasts, this podcast and others, because they just learned they have an LGBTQ child and they're freshly on this road, looking for direction. Talk to that group. Talk to those parents, Bob, and what you'd want them to know. Well, that, uh, that second uh, uh, book that you talked about, uh, Supporting Families, Healthy Children, uh, was I was invited by Dr. Caitlin Ryan, uh, a wonderful um, Catholic uh, uh, woman, uh, lesbian, uh, who has uh, associated with... Uh, San Francisco State University, she called and said she'd been working. She, Caitlin, this is a wonderful story. Here's this good Catholic um, 
lesbian woman who spent years in Utah uh, trying to help uh, Latter-day Saint families. And she did that because she said, you know, one of the reasons why I do this is that I see that Latter-day Saints honor the family in such a unique and powerful way. And she said, I, I, I need somebody to help me write a, a guide for those families. So Caitlin and I wrote that guide, which has been and is being used by counselors and by uh, ecclesiastical leaders. You can uh, go on the, uh, uh, the website, uh, 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 let's see, I guess it's uh, uh, Supportive uh, Families Healthy Children org, I think, but I, we can post something. Yeah, if, we'll uh, link to that listeners in the podcast. Uh, anyway, that is that's a wonderful guide, and I think the most important thing, Caitlin, Caitlin, is the first one to do real significant research, scientific research on this, and what she found it, through studying uh, people across uh, spectrum is that if families, the difference between if a family is rejecting of their LGBT child that child is seven times more likely to attempt or commit suicide than a family who is loving. And even if the family, even if a, a family can say, I don't understand this, I don't like it, but you're my child, I love you and I'll always love you. That is enough to keep the child from moving into that space where they feel so hopeless because to be rejected by your family is one of the great rejections. I mean, it's, it's something that it's, I don't know that anybody can really recover from it. So what Caitlin and I did in that book to say, here is a guide. Here, here are a hundred behaviors. Here, here are some uh, some dysfunctional behaviors. Here are some loving behaviors. All you have to do is be committed to trying to love your child, to send those messages of love. It's because what what happened at least a generation ago is that LGBT people were told not only did their families not love them, but God didn't love them, and the church didn't love them. And this is why so many committed suicide or who, who went to addiction, because they, they just felt there was no hope for them. And, and who of us can stand those kind of negative messages that were unworthy, that were wicked, that were sinful, and have the ego to, to somehow get through that. We're human beings. We have feelings. And so that booklet is, I think, the most powerful thing that a family, a parent can read or a bishop can read. It teaches you that the difference, the choice between being rejecting and being accepting is profound. It is the difference between life and death in many instances. And it's so easy just to be kind and loving. Even if you don't accept it, even if you can't understand it. This is a child entrusted to you by heavenly parents to love them as your heavenly parents love them. And so I think that there is a great accounting to do for parents who reject their children and who cast them out of their, their presence. Um, we need a home. One of the other things that I found that I find is really sad about us is that I haven't done a scientific study of it, but I found that many, perhaps most LGBT people who leave the church do not go to another church, do not find another spiritual home. And I feel that's a failure of us, that we have so in, uh, indoctrinated people to feel that if this is the one and only true church and it is not true for them, then nothing is. 
and and to i mean there there are when, when one of the things i have i have a nephew in fact uh who is uh he's not an active member of the church but i he lives in another uh, city and he wanted to go to church i called his bishop and said i've got a, a nephew and uh, uh i'd like him to come back to church he's, he's gay and the message I got from the bishop was not an encouraging one. So I said to my nephew, go to the Episcopal Church. They know how to deal with gay people in a way that many of our bishops do not. Uh, one of the beautiful and yet sad experiences I had when I was bishop, I had a wonderful Latter-day Saint man come to my con. He didn't, he didn't belong in our state, but like a lot of other people who came to the LA First Ward, they came because they knew it was a place where they could come and they could sing the hymns of Zion. They could uh, mingle with the saints. They could find um, a safe haven. And um, this one man, a distinguished Latter-day Saint, he was a, a, a prominent actor. He said to me, um, why don't you come to my church sometime? This was after, after I uh, was released from being a bishop. And he said, come to my church. I said, I'd love to. I, I go to other churches because I want to learn how they can teach me how to be a better Christian, uh, how to be a better child of God. So I went to his church. It was uh, uh, a, uh, a Catholic Episcopal church in uh, Hollywood. And um, it was on, uh, um, I think it was on, um, maybe, uh, I can't remember if it was Palm Sunday or it was the first, maybe it was the first day of Lent. Uh, and uh, the, the man who invited me was the leader of the lay ministry. is a returned Mormon missionary. The man who played the organ was returned gay Mormon missionary. Wow. The man who built the organ was returned gay Latter-day Saint missionary. And there were two other and this, this church had become a home for these gay Latter-day Saints, all returned missionaries, who didn't feel that there was a home for them. And we went to lunch afterwards. I asked them to tell me their stories. And the sad thing to me is that all of them wished that they could be in a Latter-day Saint meeting. All wow. of them wished they could be with Latter-day Saints singing the hymns of Zion. And that, to me, just like so many experiences I've had working with LGD people, it made me very sad. The, 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 the denial of, or the, the, the policy, the 2015 policy, made me so sad for so long. I just couldn't make sense of it. It just didn't make and doesn't make any sense to me that we could deny to these people. And I... I tell in, in an article I never published, but have written on this, I talk about a family I knew who had uh, a, a, a gay man married a, a woman, a heterosexual woman, uh, as many of them did in those generations because they were told this will cure your homosexuality, one of the really great uh, falsehoods. Anyway, they married, they had twin boys, and then after... Uh, a couple of years, they knew that this marriage was not going to work. So they separated and uh, uh, she remarried and he remarried. Uh, he, this was when he could marry. Uh, and uh, he, But each of them 
they lived close by, so they could be if they could be families. But one of them had one of the twins as the most of the time. The other had the other twin, and the twins were seven years old. And that policy came out. Wow! And you had one twin who, by that policy, could be baptized by his father. You had another twin who could not. Wow! Or, or one twin, you could be that. Yeah, and. And I and I saw so many instances in which families were just split over this, and and people who were faithful in every way, except in one way. That is, they had they had married in order to form a family, in order to fulfill the ideal that the Latter Day Saint. Every primary child who graduates from primary has an ideal, which is. My one of the most important things I have to do is to find somebody and marry them and form a family and be an eternal family. So some people, when they're 10, 11, 12, 13, 17, whatever, realize that that ideal is not going to work for them. And so they still, many of them still try to make it work. And so they find somebody that they love and want to form a family with. And this policy, it seemed to me, it was just so draconian. I couldn't, it, it did not make sense to me. It still doesn't. I'm so grateful that it no longer is a policy we have to uh, have to live with. But I feel, I just saw so many broken hearts over that. And, and we just, we have too many broken hearts already. We have too many LGBT people who have left our community. And one of the great sadnesses, as I know you know, Richard, is that very often LGBT people are other gifted. They have gifts, many of them, that are unusual. They have gifts that can bless the church. They can bless the kingdom of God. And if they're not here, we are made poorer by it. We are robbed of their fellowship and of their talents and of their gifts, and they are robbed of ours as well. Um, so we just must do everything we can to make our homes and our our places a safe haven. You know, I'm there. I know wards where people who are uh, married or people who are not married who are uh, gay living with their companions are welcomed into a ward. And I know other people are horrified by that, but I say I've never been in a ward, and I've lived in lots of places, I've never been in a ward in which there were not heterosexual cohabiting people, not married, unmarried cohabiting heterosexual people. How do we treat them? We welcome them, we welcome them to our socials, we welcome their children to primary, we welcome them in there to young men and young women. We do everything we can to socialize them. We do not treat LGBT, uh, either married or cohabiting people in the same way. Why do we make that difference? Jesus wouldn't make such a distinction. How can we justify that? I don't think the gospel allows us to do that. This is why I say we all stand condemned before the 25th chapter of Matthew. None of us teach teach the least of these, as Jesus did, we all need to, whoever that least is. And in, in this instance, we have not treated these people whom we have treated 
as the least by our behavior. We have not treated them as Jesus tells us that um, that we must. And this is why uh, the, the the great lesson is that those who have uh, those whose hearts have been broken and healed over this are called to heal broken hearts. We are all called to be, in Isaiah's term, the, the healer of shattered hearts. And that is no more true than any place than it is with our LGBTQ, whatever um, alphabet words we use to define or categorize other people. These are our brothers and sisters whom we knew in the pre-existence and whom we will know in the post-existence. And how wonderful it will be when we are embraced in that next world as we embrace them in this world as they want to be embraced. So this is a calling we all have. This is still one of the great works I believe we have to do as Latter-day Saints. We have to be as welcoming, as loving. I, a good friend of mine who lives in New Zealand a number of years ago, taught me something which has been very transformative in my life. I was having problems with a particular relationship and I was trying, asking him, I don't know what to do. I feel really torn. He said, Bob, there's only one question to ask yourself in any situation. This is the question. What is the most loving thing I can do? I try to ask that of every person that I meet and I don't always answer it in the right way. I'm still struggling in the way that I answered. And it isn't always easy to answer. It isn't an easy question. Sometimes the complexities of love cause us to go deep into our hearts. But I think if we ask ourselves with this person who is in my family or in my community or in my congregation, who is gay, lesbian, transgender, other, whatever they are, what is the most loving thing I can do? And what is the most loving thing I can do with them and for them? I think if we just ask that one question, it could be transformative. If a bishop and a Relief Society person and a young women's leader, a young women's leader has a girl who comes to her and say, I'm really confused about my sexuality. I'm, I'm finding that I'm really, I'm really attracted to, to other girls. Not to be horrified, not to feel, oh my gosh, what's happening here? Does they tell me about this? Let's sit down and talk about it. The most loving thing you can do is exactly what you are saying in your book, Richard, and what you're doing in this, to listen and to learn and to love. And to listen, Rumi says, we should listen to one another with a deep ear inside our chest, that is, with our hearts. Listen with your hearts, listen with your ears, listen with your mind, listen with your body, just listen with your presence. Listen as you would like your Savior, and your heavenly parents to listen to you. And if you can listen and then learn, and then when you've learned how to love, to love, that is one of the most powerful things that you can do. And Richard's book has wonderful examples and lessons of how to do that. Caitlin Ryan's and my booklet on uh, supportive families, uh, Healthy family, supportive supportive families, healthy children um, is a wonderful thing. And you can even download a copy for free from uh, the uh, that, that website. Uh, these are 
simple things, but they're hard things, I know, because I grew up in a family that, in which I was taught to hate gay people. We used words, uh, slang words, uh, when, for gays and, and uh, lesbians. I, I was sexually abused by my Latter-day Saint music teacher as a boy. Wow. He was gay. I was sexually abused by him. It didn't change me into a gay person. It confused me. Uh, and it took me some time to heal from that. But I can remember as a teenager living in Long Beach, my friends would say, let us go down to the Pike, which is a, uh, a, an entertainment center. Let's go down there and roll some, some queers. I, that's, that's how I grew up. I remember walking down the street when I was 15 and seeing uh, two gay men walking toward me. And I felt my fist, my fist clutch like it was something that I should do to, to physically reject that. I can overcome that only because of what I was taught in the New Testament. It was hard. But I, at a certain point, I realized that those attitudes and those behaviors, I, feel, I felt embarrassed. I do feel embarrassed that when I was a young missionary at 19 and we had a gay elder behind his back, we called him sister so-and-so. I feel terrible that I did that. I feel terrible that I, uh, that I had those feelings. But... I knew something was wrong with them when I began to read the New Testament, when I began to meet real gay people. I was fortunate in both in graduate school and as a professor to have, to have had gay uh, professor friends and gay students and gay graduate assistants. And, and I began to say, these people are no different than I am, except in this one way. And that way cannot be something that causes me to reject or discriminate against them. So this has been, you know, I've been in this ministry for, I guess, over 40 years, but it's been a wonderful uh, ministry, and I expect that it will continue to be because I love uh, my gay, lesbian, transgender brothers and sisters, and I love their families who nurture and guide and love them, and I, I hope that uh, I can play some role in, in teaching people who haven't don't yet have this understanding how to do the most loving thing. That's a beautiful segment, Bob. It's one of the finest segments we've ever had on this podcast, to be honest. And you said some things that I will never forget. Um, one is this idea of a deep ear inside our, our heart, our chest as a way to visualize the importance of listening. And then I love this idea, what is the most loving thing I can do? in a situation. And I just think you're teaching the law of love. You're teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have this New Testament, but then to apply it in our lives is the way that you're teaching us to do that. And you have to apply in our lives to people that are different than us. It's easy to love people that are just like us. Um, it, it's harder, but more rewarding and more healing for both when we learn to pe love people. Just, uh, um, what would you say to parents that, and you've really kind of answered this, that say, I, I, do I have to choose between the church I love and supporting my gay son or daughter 
as they're pursuing a path that's inconsistent with church teachings. Help parents navigate that. Um, that's what I would call a Sophie's Choice, if you remember that that movie where uh, Sophie is has to choose between uh, two children, which one is put uh, into a, 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 a train to go to the, the, the gas chamber, and which one can she keep? Uh, um, uh, the, uh, that is not a choice anyone has to make. It's not a choice anyone should ever feel compelled to make. Uh, you don't have to choose. Um, the, the great thing about the restored gospel is that it gives us an enlarged understanding of our heavenly parents. Uh, we do not see a God who is vindictive, who is punitive, who is uh, capricious, uh, who is selective. We see a God uh, uh, who. Uh, whose heart, uh, 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 his and her hearts are as wide uh, and as capacious as eternity. And um, so if you feel that, um, if you feel you have to leave something, uh, you cannot leave your child. Uh, but I don't think the church asks you to do that. Uh, and, and if you feel that it does, you need to help the church understand you have as much right to belong to the church with a gay child as anybody does. Um, I think this was, but but one of the things that's true is that there there still is a stigma. I have, uh, we have, uh, I know friends in our stake uh, who have, uh, I know a woman who has a transgender child and um, she's not had an easy time uh, raising that child in, uh, in, in this stake. I know of gay people in a stake whose uh, uh, who's, who's experience is uh, not favorable. I know lots of parents. I know parents who've left the church because their children were rejected by the church. Uh, I, I hope that they're, I mean, if I, if I had a, a child and I was in a ward and the, the board rejected me, I'd find another ward. And I know that we're supposed to go to our geographical ward, but there's a higher law here, which is to uh, to find a welcoming place. And if you don't find one, uh, try to make one. Uh, but we we're, I said to you, Richard, I think before we began, that, that no one that I know of my generation, certainly, or maybe of any generation, came full-blown enlightened from their mother's womb on LGBT issues. We all have to learn. We all have to go through this, but we live in a world in which, um, and in, there are, there are many countries now still where people it's a capital, uh, or there are some countries at least where it's a capital offense to be gay, to be openly gay. We have uh, there are lots of countries where LGBT people are rejected and treated and um, and murdered. Uh, we have laws against that, but still this is not a friendly um, world for LGBT people. Uh, I'll tell you, do we have time for one more story? Oh, you bet. This is a great format for stories. Oh, it's another really sad story, but because I've, I've been involved in this work, I get calls from time to time. Um, and uh, I got a call from a young man in St. Louis, and he said, um, I'm investigating your church and uh, I'm really excited about what the missionaries have been teaching me. Um, 
but he said, um, I'm also trans. Um, I, I, I identify as a woman, but he said, um, uh, this, the people in this ward don't know what to do with me. He said, I dress as a man because I realize that that's kind of what I have to do. But they don't really want me in priesthood and they don't want me in Relief Society. And when I have to use the bathroom, I have to go down to Walgreens because no one wants me to use either bathroom. And so I said, well, let me give me the name of your bishop. Here's a number I called and got the counselor and the counselor uh, said, um, no, excuse me. It was a woman who was transitioning to male. So I got that confused, transitioning to male. So she was going to church. He was going to church. I'll use the right pronoun, the one that he wanted. He was dressing as a man. He identified as male, dressed as male, going to church. And that's when they didn't want him in Relief Society or priesthood. Uh, and uh, so I said to the counselor, uh, this is a person who has accepted the gospel. And he said, well, the mission president doesn't know what to do with him and uh, doesn't, we just tell us we shouldn't baptize this person. Um, and uh, I said, well, let me tell you something about <laughs> what it means to be a transgender person from my experience with him. And, uh, and he kept referring to this person who's, I'll call him John, uh, as uh, a female. And I said, well, he identifies, this is the name he's going by, that's the name you need to use. And so and later I talked to this person, I'll call him John, and he said, I asked that man for a blessing, and he insisted on blessing me with my female name. Wow. And uh, so I said, well, let me write to the mission president. I wrote the mission president, the mission president said, well, the, I've written to the general authorities and they don't know, they say they don't really have a policy, but they're, we, we discourage baptism of someone who is this way. And so I said to John, look, we're not where we should be yet. Um, it doesn't look like baptism is possible. Go to the Episcopal Church because they, will, they know how to, to handle this. Um, kind of lost touch with him and he he had made acquaintance with some other people in a church uh, uh, in Salt Lake and uh, one woman I know who had um, a trans uh, child. And when I saw her, I said, have you heard anything from John? And she said, oh, Bob, he committed suicide. Oh, gee. And I just thought, oh, my gosh, what, what an absolutely unfortunate and heartbreaking story. This was a man, he had been rejected by his family. He thought he had found a family in our church. When he heard the gospel, it touched him deeply, but he couldn't find a home. Uh, so I think we still have a long way to go. We have a lot to learn. And uh, um, and these are lessons that are learnable. These are lessons that we can learn. And it's right there in the pages of the New Testament and the Book of Mormon. Um, they're 
Elder Cook's wonderful uh, expression of love for LGBT people. There are increasing, Elder Holland, uh, among others, has been very loving and uh, um, has been just, I think, very enlightened on uh, how the best way for the church to uh, address these issues. So uh, I've written an essay uh, called Repairing the Church, and it's a uh, it's something I feel we're all called to do. The Jews have a saying called tikkun olam, which means every Jew feels called to repair the world. It's something God calls us all to do. I also think we're called to repair the church. I, I, I just briefly will say, I spoke at the Institute of Religion at Berkeley a couple of years ago, and I asked them, I said, whose church is this? And they said, well, it's the church of Jesus Christ. I said, there are two possessives in the name of the church. It's the Church of Jesus Christ, but it's also the Church of the Latter-day Saints, which means it's your church and my church as well. It's not the Church of the First Presidency or the Quorum of the Twelve. It's the Church of all of those who identify as saints, Latter-day Saints. Therefore, we are all called to repair and to change it and support it and renew it and to restore it. The restoration is an ongoing process. We are still need to restore some of the truths that Jesus taught as far as our LGBTQ brothers and sisters are concerned. It's good work. It's loving work. It's work we have to do. Some really tender segments, Bob. And I love and that, even that segment before that, your own honesty at age 15 in Long Beach with your own homophobia. And I certainly have tried to be honest and apologize for that in my own life. But I think as we do that, we set an example for others to be able to apologize, and and that's part of healing and repairing. I love the word repair. You've been in this space for four decades. Um, there's people that are hoping that we'll continue to make progress as a church. Um, just talk to that. Do you have hope that, and you've kind of alluded to this, over the next period of time, we'll continue to do better in this space? Yes, and one of the reasons I have, I have hope for two things, for two reasons. One, there are a lot more LGBT people in the church. There are more general authorities uh, who have uh, gay, lesbian uh, family members. And there are uh, more uh, people who have served as bishops and even as state presidents uh, uh, and, uh, and religious society presidents who have gone through the experience of being uh, gay, lesbian, or trans. So I think to 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 know a person, to really know a person, really uh, by listening, learning, and loving, uh, it's really hard to reject them if you see them as a child of God. If you see them as someone that Jesus died for, how can you not be loving to them? So the very fact that we have that, and we also have a generation of young people growing up in the church who have lots of gay friends as we have become more open as a society, as we now uh, have uh, LGBT clubs, even uh, at BYU, uh, as we uh, uh, as we have uh, uh, more and more gay people who are in politics and uh, in entertainment. Uh, we have uh, uh, them in, uh, in professional uh, ath- athletics. Uh, we see that they're full-blooded, gorgeous human beings that we can be friends with and we can love. So I think just the very, the very fact that there 
are an increasing number. The very fact that we have, uh, we've changed church policy, we've changed um, our uh, government policy in terms of discrimination, that we have uh, people in our communities who are in the corporate world, in the uh, in the civic world, um, that so that just by that I think we should we will. But I think that God still has you know there's still many great uh, and important and even wonderful things which uh, are yet to be revealed to us to the church uh, according to what we uh, say in the uh, uh, the articles of faith. And some of those great and important things relate to. LGBT people, uh, you know, uh, B. H. Roberts uh, in his wonderful uh, discourse on discipleship says something quite remarkable. He said, "Not he said this was you know maybe a hundred years ago." He said, "But it's still true." <laughs> he said, "Not uh, a tenth, not a hundredth, not a thousandth part of what was revealed to the prophet Joseph Smith has yet been unreeled." To the world or to the church. And therefore, he says, the church requires disciples who are willing to take what he called the primitive teachings and to refine them into, it may not be his words, but what I would call more enlightened doctrines. And in that refining process, we refine our souls and our hearts, but we also refine our communities and our congregations. So that there is a, there will come a time. I hope, I hope it's in my lifetime, where a gay or transgender person can walk into any congreg- LDS congregation in the world, and be welcomed with open arms, and be born into any family, and be treated equally with any other member of that family. That's the that's the ideal, but it's also an ideal that I think can become real, as we strive to make the gospel work uh, in our lives. I knew Stuart Mattis. Wow. Most of you know Stuart Mattis's story. I'll probably close with this. It's another sad and tragic story, but um, Stuart was a gay Latter-day Saint living in the Bay Area. Um, and um, he, um, he called me. I was living in Santa Cruz at the time. Said, you know, can I, can I come and see you? And I, I said, of course. He came over and we spent a wonderful time together. We visited on other occasions. And uh, and I said, he, I knew that he had suicide ideation. And I said, you know, you, the most important decision you can make is to stay alive. You're too valuable a person. I said, in, in every way, you are what the church produces. You are the best the church produces. You have devoted your life You've made sacrifices to let the gospel refine you into a wonderful, mature Latter-day Saint. The church needs you. And so he said he would, and we kept in touch. He was very difficult for him. Uh, He had a very loving bishop who was very supportive of him. Uh, He told me he'd fallen in love with a man uh, that he didn't know what to do. Um, And I said, you know, you should, you should do what is in your best interest, what your heart leads you to do. I'm not going to counsel you what to do, but it's your decision to make. Uh, but I will support you whatever decision you make. If you decide to be celibate, I will uh, support that. If you decide to have this person as a 
companion. I I would support that. You're you're such a good human being. I went to Salt Lake to speak to Family Fellowship, which is a support group for uh, families of LGBT people, and a wonderful group of people. If you know don't know about Family Fellowship, and you can that's a group you can join. They're wonderful support groups. Uh, anyway, I got home from uh, that trip to Salt Lake, and there was a uh, a message on my machine from Stuart's mother saying that Stuart had committed suicide. He'd gone to the stake center and taken his life with a with a, with a weapon. And uh, I just I'm still not healed from that, and I don't know that I ever will be, because that is a tragedy that shouldn't have happened. I went to. Stuart's funeral service and spoke there. Uh, we, a group of us, got together on the 10th anniversary of his death and just remembered him, his goodness, the beautiful spirit that he was. Here's someone who was willing to, I think he, he said to God, I will, I will go to the temple every day if that will help. I will pay twice the tithing, I will do anything if you can change me. And it's so sad that somebody had to feel they had to make such a bargain and then finally feel there was no no way out, no exit. So we need to make, um, first of all, exits, and we also have to create a world in which no one feels there is no exit, and we can only do that, my friends, by love and by loving, by asking ourselves what the most loving thing we can do. I'm glad you talked oh, about Stuart. Um, I think that honors him and honors his family and gives hope for others. Anything else you'd like to share with our listeners, Bob? No, but I just feel like um, I think this is, we're all called to do some things. Uh, some people are called uh, to be church leaders. Some people are called to be explorers. Some people are called to be artists. Some people are called to be teachers. Uh, we're all called to love. Uh, it's the one calling uh, that we have that uh, we can't escape. And, as, and when, I, when I talk to people about Jesus' uh, two great commandments, I say it's in, in reality, uh, Jesus has three, uh, three commandments. You're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength and spirit and every way you can. You're to love your neighbor as you love yourself. So self-love is one of the uh, one of the three great commandments. The, a healthy self-love is necessary and it's one of the things that I found in so much of my ministry is that LGBT people were taught to to hate themselves and uh, and um, that is a failing. So to love ourselves, to love others, no matter who they are, to love the least, that is calling. And I feel, I've, I've often thought, that, you know, on the day of judgment, I think we, most of us imagine that. And I imagine the day of judgment that uh, Jesus calls me into his presence and I come with loaded with all of the books of the good things that I've done, wheelbarrows full of all of my good deeds and all of this and all of the things I've published and all of the accomplishments and I bring them in 
I set all of these things on the table. Um, Jesus doesn't even look at them. He might even just brush them off the table. He says, there's only one question, Bob. He opens it to the 25th chapter of Matthew and says, read this. And I read it. And he said, how did you do? That's the only question. The rest of it, well, it's important, pales in importance to that. So uh, all of these things that we do, nothing can be more important than loving. And for a church, very few things can be more important than loving our LGBTQ uh, fellows, saints, as well as those who aren't saints, our fellow human beings. It's a great calling. We all have it. And it's a great blessing. On behalf of all of our listeners, I'm just deeply moved, Bob, by your words, your spirit, your work, your great heart, by Matthew 25 and the simplicity of your message. It's not a complicated message. Um, and here's a guy that could make things pretty complicated with all the education you have and all the books you've written and all the places you've taught, but you've, your message is the power of the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ to love and to love everybody without bounds. And you teach that in an authentic, wonderful way. So there's a lot, you know, we have about 10 or 15,000 people listen to each episode. So you have helped a lot of people and touched a lot of lives. And that's just been your legacy. So on behalf of Richard Osler, this is um, Bob Reese and Richard Osler signing off from another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. <laughs>